Welcome to the weekly podcast channel for the Wilmington Church of Christ. We hope that this channel inspires and encourages you to take the gospel to all people, transforms hearts to be like Christ, and trains disciples to make disciples. For more information about our church, please go to wcconline.org. Enjoy the message. We are called to glorify Jesus Christ. We are call, called to give him glory, bring Jesus' uh, name, make Jesus' name famous. And God has given us four practices as a church to do, to participate in, to train others in that actually bring glory to God. And when we do these practices of the church, we are a beacon of hope in a culture of corruption. We become a life source to a culture in decline. Uh, we become the standard by which people are able to say that actually can lead to life. And the practices that uh, God gives us are found in Acts chapter 2. When Luke, the author, writes about the history of the church, he writes in a way that describes what was going on in the first church as, they, as followers of Jesus came to start worshiping Jesus. And he also prescribes things that we should continue to copy and imitate from that ch first church. And a good way to determine whether he is writing a description or a prescription is to find out if any of the New Testament repeats as a command the examples given to us as he describes the first church. And in the first church, the very first church in Acts chapter 2 gives us four practices that they did when they gathered together and when they went into their homes and their groups that give glory to Jesus Christ, that serve as a light in the community, and fights the culture that tries to creep in among all of us. And mainly it fights in two ways. The Satan is setting up a culture, and our own sin is setting up a, a, a culture that is narcissistic and relativistic. And what I mean by that is... Um, Narcissism is this idea that you are self-absorbed and self-focused and selfish. For a hundred years of psychology, narcissism was considered a pathological problem. But it's not a new problem. And relativism is this idea that uh, the only reality that we are in is the one from my perspective. It's all relative to me. Now, there are major problems when narcissism and relativism take over a culture, but they're not new problems. Remember Adam and Eve? Eve, in chapter 3 of Genesis, saw the fruit and saw that it was good and looked good and was good for eating and good for gaining knowledge of, of wisdom. So she took it and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her. That is relativistic. You know, I'm going to follow the rules unless I want to not follow the rules. Anybody ever do that before? The rules are good for you, but they're not really good for me right now. That's relativism. And narcissism. I want to do something that is good for me. A narcissistic person will say, do whatever you want as long as it makes you feel good and doesn't hurt anybody else. Right? These are major problems in our culture. And when a culture goes down this road, but it's not a new problem. This has been around since Adam and Eve. But when cultures go down this road and, and live here, this road of death, relativism uh, re ends up rejecting traditional standards in religion, science, law, medicine, and journalism, and really it just gets rid of any standard. 
Anybody experiencing the standards eroding or what you thought were the standards? And narcissism, because it moves towards selfishness, that means we have a problem of sacrifice and poverty in our community increases, education, healthcare, and and, uh, defending each other actually decline when narcissism. By the way, this culture of decline was the same culture Jesus' first disciples lived in. And this culture of decline was the same culture that after Adam and Eve and the fall happened, the whole world lives in. It's not something new, and God has always sent his people to interact and be the action that defeats the culture, that defeats those, those things in the culture. Let me, let me do one more side note. If you are in line with the conspiracy theory that whatever, whatever conspiracy theory you want to go down, okay? So this morning a friend of mine said, have you heard about the New World Order? I have another friend that says the election was stolen. Whatever conspiracy you go down, okay, these practices actually fight against whatever conspiracy you're reading about. But they fight in the way that God has established that we bring peace and love and grace into the world as a beacon of hope. And it fights against selfishness and it fights against relativism because God gives us standards. When Peter met with the very first Christians in Jerusalem, they were living in a world of corruption. And he explained to them Jesus, and he said, save yourself from this world of corruption. And the very first church was formed. 3,000 people believed his message about Jesus, were baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection, and raised to a new creation, and then they began the first church. And here, in Acts 2, 42, there are four practices the very first church did that was countercultural that fought against selfishness and relativism. Acts 2.42 says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These four practices, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers kind of encompass... All the practices the church needs to do. Now, notice it doesn't mention world missions. Well, that's what the apostles taught. Jesus said, go in the world and make disciples. Well, the apostles taught that. So under the apostles' teaching is world missions. You know, kind of all of Christianity is taught under these four practices of the church. Today, we're going to do an overview of these four practices that fight against the culture, that make us become counterculture. When the community around us gets sick and tired of being sick and tired, they look for answers. The church can be that answer if we're doing these four practices. When our world gets sick and tired of being sick and tired, we don't want them to start looking for an answer and run to the church and just see a reflection of themselves. And if we are practicing these four practices, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer, we're going to be the answer to their problems. We're going to be the answer that gives them life. We're going to be the answer to narcissism and relativism that the world is faced with in every single culture that is in decline. The answer is the church. 
And these Christians were devoted to these four practices. That word devoted is a consistent, persistent practice that they're attached to. So they're going to do it no matter what. They're going to endure, and they're going to do it because they love it. And they love the difference it's making. Now, these four practices from the first church, the reason why we know this is a prescription for our church is because later in the New Testament, multiple times, we have the command to repeat all of these practices. The command to teach and the command to preach what the apostles taught that first church, that's repeated as a command to us. The command to fellowship and continue to practice what that means as a community of believers is repeated as a command to us. The command to practice communion is a command that is repeated as a command to us. And the command to continue to pray is a command to us. So we want to continue practicing these four practices. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And as we practice it, God will open our eyes to where we are falling short. The, the, the terrible thing about sin is it blinds us to our own sin, and then it blinds us to our blindness. But as we turn to the teachings of Christ and we practice them as a church, the Holy Spirit removes our blindness, blindness, allows us to see where we're falling short of God's standards, opens our eyes to our own sin, and then allows us to confess our sin, be forgiven, and move forward in life. These practices help us continue on with an identity and a purpose and a path to maturity. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Today, we're going to do an overview, and over the next several weeks, we're going to break them down and define them with a little bit more detail. But the first one we want to point out today, as we do these four, is the apostles' teaching. Well, what did the apostles teach? We could spend the rest of our Sundays discussing what the apostles taught, because the entire New Testament is the apostles' teaching. But there is a focus that the apostles did, especially in that first church, and the focus was one name, Jesus. Peter, as he stood up before the crowd at Jerusalem, told them about Jesus. After Luke gives us his summary of what happened to the first church, Acts 2.42, what we just read, he gives a summary of what happened, and he kind of prepares us for what's going to happen. Peter and John, they go to the temple, they meet a man who was begging because he was crippled, and you know what they talked about? Jesus. Look at chapter 3. I, wanna, I, wanna, I just want to show you how much they emphasize Jesus. So uh, Peter and John, they go, the man's begging for money, they said, hey, we don't have any money, but we can give you Jesus. And then, in the name of Jesus, he commands this man to get up and walk and heals him. They were practicing not only the teaching, but God gave them wonders and signs to, uh, to give them the authority behind their teaching. All the people came around, and they gathered around uh, Peter and John because they were amazed at what they were seeing. And here's what Peter said. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness that we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. He got straight to Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before, the, before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. He got right to Jesus. He got right to the gospel message, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and then he said, we are witnesses of this. And by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see 
and no was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed this crippled man. The apostles' teaching focused on Jesus. We want to be a church that continues to focus on Jesus. If you attend a church or you go visit a church and you don't ever hear anything about Jesus, you need to question whether you need to be in that church. Because if you're gathering together with a group of people and you're not talking about Jesus, you're called a social club. But the church gathers together to give praise and glory to Jesus, to mature ourselves in Jesus, to remind ourselves of Jesus, to increase our faith in Jesus. This was the apostles' teaching. And as we put our faith in Jesus, it counteracts the world's cry and the devil's temptation to be selfish and to only follow the rules that are good for you, relativism. We become this beacon of hope. We become this way of truth when we talk about Jesus. Now, it's not the only thing the apostles taught. And what they did was they moved from Jesus to train up disciples toward maturity. So they continued to show how to focus on Jesus and allow that to change your life. But the apostles' teaching, the foundation was on Jesus. And as they taught the scriptures, the Old Testament, they pointed people to Jesus. And as they wrote the New Testament under the authority of God and inspiration of Scripture, backed by signs and wonders to know that they had authority to write the, gospel, the, write the Scriptures, they talked and taught about Jesus. I think if we wanted to practice more of the apostles' teaching, we should probably talk more about Jesus. So here's your challenge. This week, Every day, in conversation, bring up Jesus some way, somehow. Have that conversation steered toward Jesus. Talk about his death and resurrection. Talk about the grace that you have received. If something good happens to you, you should tell people, praise Jesus for the grace that he's just given to me. If something bad happens to you, you should tell people, praise Jesus that he's going to give me the strength to endure this. And talk about Jesus. This is what Peter did. This is what John did. This is what the first apostles did. This is what the early church did. When they did the apostles' teaching, they focused on Jesus and they moved people toward maturity. You know how I mentioned sin sometimes blinds us and then it blinds us to our blindness? Well, God promises that if we confess our sin and turn to him, he will forgive us in the name of Jesus. What I'd like to do is maybe do a prayer of confession for myself and for our church, if you want to join me, that we don't focus our attention on Jesus enough. And if you would confess that prayer, God promises he will forgive you, and he will open your eyes to all the ways that you're able to now share Jesus that you've missed in the past. We want to be a church that focuses in on these four practices. Number one, we want to do the apostle teaching, which is focused, centered, grounded on Jesus Christ. Would you allow me to pray for us a prayer of confession? Would you join me in confessing that prayer and ask God to open your eyes to where you are not talking about Jesus? Let's pray. God, I confess to you my own sin that I don't focus on Jesus enough. That I don't share the apostles' teaching toward discipleship and maturity enough that I don't Start with Jesus and then move to train disciples. Lord, I confess to you my failing and that command to me. And I confess to you on behalf of our church 
that so often we become self-absorbed instead of giving our attention and our love and our, our resources and our time and our energy to Jesus. Lord, please forgive us in His name and reveal to us places where we can make Him famous with our conversations and in our life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The first church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. We need to be devoted to that as well. We're going to break that down. Next week, we're going to start there with the apostles' teaching. But the next part that the first church was devoted to, they practiced it and practiced it and practiced it. They never stopped practicing this. And when they did, they had a problem in their church. And we encounter the problems that churches have almost on the very next page. Because no church is perfect. It's made up of imperfect people forgiven by Christ. But they practice fellowship. Now, if, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard the word fellowship before because it's probably connected to fellowship meal. And if you've grown up in the church, you've heard what the word is based on koinonia. And fellowship meal actually doesn't do fellowship justice. We're going to spend a whole Sunday talking about fellowship, but for today, here's a way to define fellowship. Because fellowship means we gather together, we have a, a purpose that we're joined together around, we're going to care for one another, we're going to encourage one another. Here's a definition we can use for fellowship. It is practicing the laws of Jesus, the commands of Jesus, in relationship. Practicing the commands of Jesus in relationship. This is fellowship. This is how we counter the culture of selfishness. We practice the commands of Jesus in relationship. I was thinking about how this kind of plays out, and I've seen it happen in our church just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so one example is the birthday cards that we signed for Helen. Um, I, I went over, I, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I got there, and I had this stack of birthday cards. I said, can you deliver these to Helen? She turns 103, and they said, well, you know you're not allowed back in there. I said, I know, I'm not allowed back in there. That's the rule. But can you deliver them to Helen? And then the person said, well, could you come stand at the end of the hallway and look through the window of the door? I'll get Helen up and come over, and she can wave hi to you, and then we can give her the card. She'll see your face. Well, when you turn 103, it's not like you get up out of your chair and come running over the door real fast. And I could see down the hallway, the door opened. And the lady said, Helen, you have a visitor. Do you want to come see him? And then she turned to me and said, why don't you just come back and see her? And I snuck in real fast, and I was able to give Helen that stack of birthday cards that we made for her. And she, tears. And she said, thank you. And I was able to pray with her and love on her. This is fellowship, doing the commands of Christ in relationship. And I said, Helen, I'm not even allowed to be back here. She goes, I know. And she said, you better get out of here. And so I ran out as fast as I could. But for, for less than a minute, I was able to see her and love on her and give her your love from, her, from you to her. You know, sometimes she feels like she's forgotten because she's outlived all of her Sunday school class. 103 years old. We gave her 104 cards, and I got another one in the mail this week. She's got 105. I got to deliver to her. That's the love. That's the fellowship. Practicing the commands of Jesus in relationship. The relationship has to happen. That's why gathering together is so important because it's so much harder to do relationship online. Although it can happen, it's much more difficult to do online. 
to know what somebody's needs are, to encourage them, and then meet their needs. But it happens. We got a call in the, in the church this past week. They said, hey, um, so-and-so is sick with COVID. His mom lives with him. His mom has to go to the doctor's office, but he's too sick to shovel his driveway. Can anybody in the church shovel his driveway? Yeah. You know what? I called one of our elders who happens to have a really big shovel on the front of his truck. And he went over to her, their driveway and he had it cleared in like 30 seconds because the driveway wasn't big, but they just couldn't get out. That's the church working out love in relationship. This is how we're supposed to do it. By the way, when we do this right, the world notices. And they say, why do they love each other so much? Why are they willing to give up? And it's not communism. It's not like I'm forced to give you the things I have. What it is, it's love. I love you so much that if you have a need, I'm going to give you what I have so you won't have a need anymore. That's the love of Christ. That's how Jesus did it. When Jesus came, focus on Jesus. When Jesus came, he saw our need for rescue. He knew that we were sick with sin and that we were guilty of sin. And so he came to meet our need, to remove our sin sickness and give us health, and to remove our guilt and give us life and justification through his death. And he sacrificed himself so that we could be saved. When we gather together, when we meet together, when we're in the large gathering and when we're in our homes, we try to move to meet each other's needs. We follow the commands of Christ in relationship. Oh, one, one, one side note, one side note, one side note. I was thinking about this. This is, this is our, sometimes our problem when, when we think fellowship is just throwing money at a problem. And this is some of our problems when uh, we hear about um, there is... There is um, a charity that's going to give money to help people. Some of the times we, we bump into a problem because we, we recognize when we give money to the situation, the person in need's life actually doesn't change, and they're just as bad off when the money runs off as they were before. And so we hesitate to give money into that. But fellowship doesn't allow for that. It recognizes the need, and we're, it says take your resources, go meet the need, but then you do it in relationship. So you go to that person, and you help them grow out of their position of problem. It's especially helpful in the church. That's fellowship. The early church was devoted to this type of living. And the world noticed. You know, sometimes I think we need to confess that we are too selfish to move into somebody else's life in a relationship to help them in their need because it's so hard but if we have been changed by christ and been given the grace of jesus we can't help but go share that same grace and love with somebody else sometimes i think we need to confess that we see a need and we throw money out of it instead of actually going to help them change and grow out of their position of need. Scripture promises if we confess our sin, God will forgive us and open up our eyes so that we can actually live out maturity, a higher standard to what Jesus calls us to live. This is fellowship. The first church practiced the apostles' teaching, fellowship. And then Luke uses his code word for communion. When Jesus was meeting with his disciples on the road with, to Emmaus, 
when he broke the bread, they recognized him. So breaking of bread can be used to talk about just a common meal. You sit down, you break bread together, you're eating together. But it also, in this case, specifically is talking about communion together because it's the gathered church, and they're talking about how they are worshiping together. And when they gathered together, and this is kind of beautiful because we've had been forced to do this, when they gathered together, they broke bread. Well, where did they gather together? They gathered together in their homes in smaller groups, and when they met together, they reminded each other of why they meet. They reminded each other they're meeting because of the name of Jesus, and when they broke bread together, they were having, they probably had a meal together, but they had communion, where they put their focus back on Jesus. We're going to spend a whole Sunday talking about the beauty of communion, but just for today, I want to mention how communion reminds us of the death of our master, but also of his resurrection. It reminds us that he died and sacrificed himself for us, but it also reminds of his love for us. It reminds us of our own sin. So when we examine ourselves in communion, we remember he died because I sinned. But it also connected them to something that the world says is crazy. It connects us to the acknowledgement that we are in need and we are weak. The world looks at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles because it is weakness where God reveals his strength. And the danger, the danger is not being weak. The danger is not facing something that is too big for us to overcome. The danger is not that we can't take it another, we can't make it another step because we're weak. The danger is when we think we're strong. And we think we're strong enough to handle a situation because as soon as we think we're strong enough, we quit seeking out help from Jesus. As soon as we think we can handle the situation, we stop seeking the support that only God can give us. As soon as we think we're strong enough, we no longer seek out the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. The danger is when we stop seeking Jesus and communion reminds us we got to continually go back to Jesus. And when the church met together, They reminded themselves of their need for Jesus in communion. I love this story. There's a local church in town that uh, somebody came up to them and said, well, why do we take communion every week? I love this story. Because when I was growing up, the Church of Christ and the Christian church, we, we would die on the hill that you had to take it every week. But it's not commanded in Scripture that you have to take it every week when you gather. You know what? Every Sunday. What's commanded is, Jesus says, when you gather together, you need to do this in remembrance of me. So if anything, we should actually take communion more often. But that person asked the pastor, why do we take communion every week? And that pastor said, because we like it. We love remembering what Jesus has done for us. It is commanded in Scripture to do. And there is a precedent in Acts chapter 20 that when they met together on the first day of the week, Sunday, they participated in communion. But the command from Jesus is just when you gather, you need to do this. So I want to encourage you, don't just take communion when we gather as a large group. Take communion in your homes with your family. Take communion in your homes with your friends. Bring up Jesus in your conversation and talk about the grace you've been given. Look for ways to share the love of Jesus with somebody else so you can lead them out of their poverty, wherever they're in poverty, whether they're in poverty in their thinking or in their actions or in actual physical need, and then remind them of why you do that by participating in communion with them. Everybody in here that's a Christ follower is a priest, so everybody in here can give communion. 
where they celebrated apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. I don't know what they were praying. We have an example in, in Scripture. In chapter 4, the first church, Peter and John, were captured by the Sanhedrin, and they were commanded, don't teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Don't teach about Jesus. And they said, well, we've got to actually obey God, not you. They were whipped. Then they were sent home, and when they got home with the church gathered around them, they prayed. Chapter 4, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Remember, these things give glory to God. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against this anointed one. They kept praying. They ended, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What they were praying was Psalms. I think the early church prayed the Psalms. I think the early church passed down uh, the Lord's prayer that he gave them. Our Father who art in heaven. I think they practiced that. There were, um, I think, I can't remember now, eight or 18 benedictions that the Jewish person would pray. There were three set times for the Jewish person of prayer at the temple. I think they prayed those. I think they prayed and prayed and prayed. I think when they gathered together with other Christians, they prayed. I think when they were walking along alone, they were praying. I think they went into their prayer closet and prayed by themselves where nobody else could see. I think when they got with other people, they prayed so other people could see and give glory to God. What they did is they practiced and were devoted to prayer. Don't raise your hand. I'll just raise my hand for all of us. Who in here needs to pray more? We all need to pray more. The first church was devoted to prayer, and as they prayed, they saw God's hand move more clearly. As they prayed, they grew closer to Jesus. As they prayed, they became this beacon of light and hope in a community that was in decline. As they prayed, they were strengthened and encouraged. As they prayed, their eyes were opened where they needed to fellowship more in love and grace. And as they prayed, they understood what the apostles were teaching them in Scripture more and more. We need to pray, and we need to pray more. So if you want to add to your job list today of things that you're devoted to, you can add bringing up Jesus in a conversation. That's one way. You can add fellowshipping together, looking for needs to share the love and grace that you've been given through Jesus Christ, but not just throw money at it, actually build a relationship so you can lead people to maturity. You can gather together with other Christians in your small groups this week and just take communion together to remind yourself of Jesus and pray. What if you prayed with your family more often? I've been trying to do that in my house, and I think I picked the wrong time to add our prayer time. I do it right before we eat dinner. And so we're all gathered around the table. My kids have finally got there. My wife is there. The food is hot. It's smelling. We're, we're like getting ready to eat. And, and this happens almost every time. And I so desire, I want to wash my family with the word. And my son will have one fork almost to his mouth. I'll say, wait, let me read this scripture for you. I want to wash you with the word. And they look at me like, can't you pick another time to wash me with the word? And I'll start reading scripture. And one of my sons, he'll look at me and he'll notice when I go back to the Bible and he'll take a bite. <laughs> 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 a 
like I can't see you doing that. And then I pray over them. We need to do more praying together. The early church was devoted to these four practices. You know, when we gather together, if we would pray more together, I think that leads to greater worship together. Where the songs that we sing, when we're singing Scripture, and we're singing the apostles' teaching, that's what, that's what our songs are made out of. They're made out of the apostles' teaching. Sometimes when the songs don't line up with Scripture, we say, you know, we, we can't sing that anymore. It doesn't line up with Scripture. There's one song that Nick would sing, um, and it talks about coming to the altar of Christ. Well, we don't have an altar anymore. The altar went away with the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And so I said, Nick, the only way you can sing that song is if you explain that the altar is actually the cross now, and we come to the cross of Christ. Because it's a beautiful song, it's really cool, but it's not biblical if you are thinking about the altar from the Old Testament. We come to the altar, we come to the cross. And so Nick, when he sings that, you watch him, he explains this altar is actually Jesus' cross we come to. And then we sing it, and I don't have a problem with it. When we sing the apostles' teaching, I think if we're in prayer before we come in and sing, I think if we are in prayer and we make our hearts kind of prepared for worship in that extra prayer time, I think that makes our worship more glorifying to God. And I think as if we leave here in prayer, praying about what we're taught in Scripture, I think that kind of motivates us to maybe put it into practice every day of the week. I think if we can remind ourselves to wake up in prayer and go to bed in prayer, it will also prompt us to maybe study the Scripture. The man of God is blessed when he meditates on the Word of God day and night. That's the apostles' teaching. But the prayer kind of prompts us. I think when we're in prayer, God gives us more opportunities to share his love and grace with others. Don't we need to pray more? Shouldn't we confess in prayer right now that we don't pray enough? Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I confess that I don't pray enough. And I need to increase my devotion to the practice you give us of prayer. I confess on behalf of our church that we need to increase our prayer. Would you remove the blinders and the selfishness and the relativism that we are currently having creep into our own lives and refocus our attention on Jesus and remind us set times of the, of the day to pray. Remind us that we should pray in between those set times without ceasing. Remind us that when we gather together with our family and with our friends, that we have an opportunity to just say, hey, do you mind if I pray for each other? Remind us when we gather together to eat that that's an opportunity to pray. Remind us to pray for our spouses and our loved ones and our children and our coworkers and our friends. Allow us to pray to have our eyes open where we can take the gospel to them and share the good news of Jesus. Remind us to pray that we can uh, remind each other and encourage each other about the grace that we have received and the grace that we're being given and the grace that overflows the boundaries so that we can know Jesus more intimately. Lord, would you help us to pray? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Four practices the first church was devoted to that if we would devote our attention, our time, and energy to, 
We will be a church that is the city on the hill. We will be a beacon of truth and life in a culture in decay. We will be the answer the world is looking for when they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And when they turn to the church, they won't just see a reflection of the same selfish things that they've been going through. They'll actually see Jesus. Now let's remind each other why we meet with our own time of communion. Would you get out the bread and cup? And if you're at home, would you get out your bread and cup? And we will participate in communion together. And we will use this as a reminder. If you are saved, if you have confessed your faith in Christ, you've repented of your sins and been baptized, we want you to participate in communion. And if you need a cup and you don't have one, if you raise your hand, somebody will take a cup and throw it to you wherever you are in this. Does anybody need a cup? Sometimes I forget mine. You need one? Here. Ready? Oh, man, that was close. It was close. Now I need somebody to get me one. Oh, yeah, we got it. Can you make it? All the way. Hurl it. I, can, I trust you. There is so much joy in Jesus. That joy bubbles over into, we, we can enjoy each other's presence. You know what? The communion, even though this is a serious moment of examination, there is joy here. Would you take out your bread? Would you allow this bread to remind you that Jesus Christ had himself nailed to the cross for you, his body broken so that you could be healed, his body whipped with stripes so that your wounds can be healed. Would you concentrate, center your attention on Jesus? Scripture says when we eat the body, we are, when we eat the bread, we are participating in his body. Would you participate in the bread? Would you get your cup. And would you remind yourself that Jesus nailed himself to the cross, went willingly as a sacrifice, and his blood was poured out, and spiritually his blood covers over all of your sins, making you clean. His blood, by his blood, we are saved. Would you participate in the cup? If you don't know the joy of Jesus, if, you don't, if you've never experienced that command to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit like Riley did, like you saw me, if you don't know that joy, we want to make that available to you. We want to help you take your next best step so that you can be in the community of Jesus Christ by being in Christ. If you don't know what that feels like, we want to give that to you. Would you find me after church? Find one of our staff. Find one of our elders. Find a neighbor that has been coming to this church that has heard that before. They can explain it to you because they've been coming to the church so long. They've heard it time and time again. We want to help you as a church take your next best step. If you're online and you don't know what it is to be in Christ and you have never experienced that joy, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers 
we want to help you take your next best step. Will you fill out a connection card? We will not only pray for you, but we'll also help you take your next best step to get in Christ. Our next step and our job this week is to start practicing these four practices of the early church. Start practicing them. Try to do them daily. Try to get together with other Christians and practice them because we want to fight the selfishness that we have within us. We want to fight the temptation of selfishness that is happening in the world, the, the ability that we can blind ourselves to the standards of God. We want to fight that, and we do that by turning our attention back to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking bread and prayer. And we can all sum it up with just turning our attention to Jesus. That's what the apostles did. That's what the first church did. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. But we're dismissed to go practice being the church. I got it? Please stand, I'll pray for us. God, we thank you. We thank you for the joy that we can have as we gather together. And we thank you that we can even stop in the midst of that joy and have reverent moments where we remember Jesus on the cross and reverent moments when we go out and share the joy that we've been given through grace. God, we thank you for the practice of the early church that serves as an example of how we should practice church today. Lord, would you focus our attention on Jesus so much that we can't help but practice the apostles' teaching, the fellowship. We can't help but remember his sacrifice. And we can't help but turn to you with more and more and more unceasing prayer. Lord, help us to practice that this afternoon. Help us to share that with our friends tomorrow. And help us to regather to learn more about the apostles' teaching come next Sunday. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If this message has inspired you or encouraged you, we would love if you shared it with a friend. To help support ministries like this one, go to wcconline.org slash donate.